All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kuhler. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. I'm Josh Clark, and you're listening to Powerful with Jeff Couliard. Welcome to today's podcast, where we take on possibly the biggest question facing humanity, good versus evil. We have a wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Evil herself, Catherine Van Kessel, who is a researcher up at the University of Alberta, who studies things like terror management theory and what happens when we don't think about death and what happens when we do think about death, both consciously and unconsciously. And she really looks at ways that we conceptualize evil in in the world and and what that suggests about what we can do to do something different um to take different actions and we have an especially interesting conversation about worldviews and how fixed our mindsets get in in the face of of death and what that suggests about the current polarization in the world of politics and society in general so please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation about good and evil with dr evil herself Catherine van kessel Cool. And how long have you been teaching in academia? Ah, well, um, as a professor since 2016, but I taught, I've been teaching at the university since 2013 uh, as a doctoral student. And then I taught, um, I taught secondary school for about nine years. Okay. Awesome. What yeah. prompted the, the shift? Yeah, well, um, the part of it is, I think, just like everyone, you get kind of itchy feet after a while and you want to have a new challenge. But uh, the big thing for me is I had a, kind of a bit of a shattering, I guess. Mm. Um, when I was teaching uh, in high school, I was teaching a grade 11 class, a social studies class. And with the Alberta Program of Studies, one of the topics is genocide. So you talk about the uh, Holocaust, you talk about the uh, forced Ukrainian famine, uh, and then you choose others as an instructor. So frequently, you know, Rwanda and Darfur and, and so mm-hmm. on. Um, and I was teaching this and I really wanted them to feel the impact because, you know, one of the reasons we teach about genocide in social studies is we don't want it to happen again, right? So you want them to not be cold about it and be like, oh, you know, excuse me, uh, miss, uh, how many million? I want to get the number right. You know, you want to get away from that yeah. sort of thing. Um, so I started um, trying to get them to feel more in the classroom. And I feel I did that terribly and mm. didn't care for them enough. Mm. Uh, so I thought I should go back to school and learn how to do that better. Right. Well, that sounds like a, a turning point in the journey um, because now, yeah, you, now you're Dr. Evil on Twitter, yes, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I'm sure, a story in and of itself. But um, Indeed. what do we what do we need to know about your research and the and the work that you're doing that we don't know about? Sure. Um, and I mean, I've got lots of questions, but maybe maybe starting there is a little bit of kind of what what the the thrust is of of your research and why it's important. Like, why do we need to be 
uh, I guess, more diligent or more aware, more like digging into some of these topics in ways that we're not? Oh, thank you. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think an important thing I'd like people to know about my work is that it's, it's in the hope of creating something better or returning to something that was good or, or these kind of things. So uh, kind of to steal a line from, from Thomas Hardy, uh, he says, uh, if a way to the better there be, it exacts a full look at the worst. Uh, and that's the point that I'm coming from. Um, so uh, I try not to be uh, the sort of person who just, who dwells on the negative for the sake of dwelling on the negative. Like it's, it's supposed to be for a greater good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, jokes aside, you know, Dr. Evil and everything. Um, in fact, some of the humor that I use is actually <laughs> to sort of get us to tolerate these topics a little bit more. It's kind of a bit of a psychological trick mm-hmm. to diffuse some, some anxiety, mine and, and that of others. Uh, and because I, I think that we are so quick to think of evil as other and not us. And that impedes us making better choices and having better relations with other humans, with animals, the planet, and so on. Okay. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about good and evil. Like that seems like the most foundational place to start uh, a conversation (laughs) about it. Is evil inherent in us is, and these might be questions that you have no answers to. Like these are, you know, not small questions on this podcast. Um, But (laughs) like, how do we understand evil, good and evil in the world? Or how do you understand it? How do you, how do you go about teaching that topic? Cause that's a very, that's a a loaded topic. If there is a topic um, to teach. Indeed. Um, Thus far, uh, I have not found one definition of good or one definition of evil that I think really encompasses the complexity of what we're facing in the world today. Uh, So I'm I'm kind of the world's most frustrating researcher because I was like, you know, yeah, maybe not. Maybe there isn't a, a one a one way of understanding it. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the evils I study uh, is the evil of imposing a single truth on someone else. Uh, Elaine Bedgeview calls this disaster. So it's kind of evil to have one definition of evil in, mm-hmm. in sort of a way, which is, again, I, I realize is completely frustrating. I apologize. Um, but oh, what I okay. am- That's the kind of conversation I love because- Okay, perfect. You know, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> The map is not the, the territory is... and uh, everything's a map. So oh, love it. <laughs> yeah. So what, what I've been doing is just trying to learn a number of different uh, conceptualizations of evil, some from philosophy, some from psychology, you know, and whatever discipline, religious studies, obviously, uh, and sort of trying to look at them as where are they helpful and where are they harmful? And that I actually can define. <laughs> um, I would define helpful as definitions that ask us to think ethically, uh, personally, as a and as you know, interconnected humans. And then harmful would be ones that kind of shut down that critical thinking. Hmm. I like that. Um, yeah. So I've done a lot of work in addiction and mental health. That's my background. Um, and. We actually stumbled across a framework, Marshall Rosenberg's work around nonviolent communication um, mm-hmm. and his definition of violence at, you know, meeting your needs at the expense of someone else's. Mm-hmm. Super like when you, when you get to a place like that, it's like, oh shit, like lot, there's lots of things that are violent that are unintentionally violent, but yeah. where I go about imposing my will on the world to meet an underlying set of needs or align with my values in a certain way um, without, um, I guess, thought about the repercussions or the consequences for other people. And I'm unintentionally 
sacrificing their needs in exchange for my own. That's about the most foundational definition of violence that I've been able to find, which, you know, violence mm-hmm. and evil, they're, they're close cousins. They're living in the same, uh, same neighborhood. So, um, kind of thoughts. Yeah, they're are, intertwined. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you open up a conversation about good and evil? Do you have, a, have you found a good way to enter into that with your students or with at a cocktail party? <laughs> well, I find in, in those, uh, those social situations, uh, I have to lead in with humor usually just to sort of, Break you know, joke uh, aside, you know, cause it's, it's, cause it's quite a common thing, say at conferences, you know, I'll meet someone new and they'll ask me what my research is. I'll say, well, I research evil. And they're like, huh. And either they're super interested and want to know more or they, they walk away, <laughs> which is fair. <laughs> uh, in a classroom where people are more beholden to me and they can't necessarily escape me, even if they would like to, um, I really think about, um, yeah, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Kenton Hire has this line about what must happen before the lesson begins. Mm-hmm. And so I really start with that of, you know, before I mention the difficult topics, before, you know, we try to define evil or look at examples of evil, you know, in history and contemporary times, I really think about how we can develop as a group, uh, the language for the difficult emotions and talk with them openly about it. Um, we talk about some strategies, you know, for some people, you know, their, their coping can look a lot in, you know, really different from other people. So just sort of being aware of that, like, like back to the example of laughter, like sometimes people will laugh at things that are inappropriate because they actually don't know what to do with all the mixed up emotions Mm -hmm. and how we react to that. So if you're teaching, you know, as a teacher, teaching about, say, for example, the Holocaust Shoah, um, and a student might laugh, you know, you might think, oh, this is horrible, you know, they're a Nazi or something, but it could just be this sort of stuff. So we we lay all those ground rules, um, and then I remind them of that each time before we talk about uh, evil in either in general or in a specific manifestation. Right. Okay. Generally speaking, what what's the value um, you see in unpacking evil or in teaching episodes of evil and i'm curious about your perspective on evil in the world is it increasing decreasing it does it just stay the same is there's this like background level of violence and evil that you see or um that might not be a question you can answer but just kind yeah. of just for the listener and for myself kind of some big picture like important pieces of the evil discussion that we should be right. talking about thinking about aware of if that's, right. I don't know if that's a specific uh, enough question, I can try and drill down a little bit or if that's enough <laughs> to get you, get you rolling. I'll take a stab at it and then feel free to prompt me to, sure. to, to get me to shift into certain directions. Um, as for the, you know, kind of the, the effects of talking about evil or the purposes or mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do with it. Um, I, I have talked about evil with high school students, uh, with undergrads and with graduate students, uh, as well as, you know, other nerds at conferences and whatnot. And uh, probably the most fulfilling comment that I get is that people are being a little more thoughtful about things they used to not be thoughtful about. Um, you know, the specifics of that will vary in terms of how that's been taken up, but they are a little more attuned to how they can react in certain ways. So as a social studies person um, and as someone who's very interested in both uh, Canadian and American politics, um, I think about political polarization. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I know I, I worked with this uh, wonderful undergraduate student. She was, uh, bless her soul, stuck with me for two classes. So she had a lot of this stuff. <laughs> and she went up on her final practicum and she uh, was talking about evil with her students and how we think of evil as not other and not us. And how when we hear someone with a different worldview, it can evoke these responses that are 
linked in a certain way. And, and uh, she said that for her, like it changed how she talked with her family, like at Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it affected how her students and even some of her students, you know, um, were somewhat dumbstruck of, of realizing when they had sort of fallen prey to that behavior without even really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's important because I think it can, get, it can be this revelation as long as we are, um, we're implicated just enough. Like it's mm-hmm. not, we're not written off like, oh, we're evil, we're a lost cause, but it's like, oh, um, the thing some, I criticize about others. There's some capacity could... there for evil mm-hmm. or there's some capacity for violence. Like that's that's the light bulb usually when I'm, when I'm talking about it from a kind of a violence perspective, interpersonal violence, or even violence against self, right? It's like when we're, yeah. just the language that we use and we're unaware of, of that language and all violence starts in language and how we describe yeah. others, right? That othering process, um, that judgment, judgment, good, good and bad, right? evil yeah. um, right right <laughs> and wrong um there's a good quote i think from rumi the philosopher you know beyond the mm-hmm. ideas of right and wrong there's a field and i'll meet you there and that's uh yes that guides a lot of my my work so some of those light bulb moments for people are that evil's not this abstract concept that's out there that there's a little bit of like inherent capacity to do that probably mm-hmm. unintentionally be evil what are some yeah. of the other things that pop out of a conversation um or have kind of been some of those light bulb moments for folks? I think another light bulb is uh, locating uh, where responsibility is for past horrors. So Mm. away from the individual, still with some, I think it's some individual implication. Um, So I've done some work uh, with a colleague of mine uh, at the University of Kentucky, Ryan Crowley. He and I looked at um, like how we construct villains in the past and you know so we used we talked about a number of examples uh, but one of them of course the textbook example of the evil villain of Hitler and kind of saying that you know yes we need to condemn of course what he's said and done and and so on because it's uh, just incomprehensibly awful Uh, but if we don't expand beyond that and if we make him too cartoonishly evil then we don't see the structural forces Mm -hmm. But then we also caution, like, if we just say, like, oh, why did this horrible thing happen? Well, it's because of society. It's like, well, what society? You know, like, society doesn't seem to have agency or Mm -hmm. to do something about it. So it's, um, so I think really fleshing out some of these definitions of evil and how they operate can help us be in that in-between space where it's not like one individual, but it's not this amorphous thing that we can't put our finger on, but we're, we're kind of doing this dance in between that, at least in English, I don't think we've got really the words to convey that succinctly. Yeah. And you see that everywhere. I don't think that's just a phenomenon with good versus evil. That's a, sure. I said we saw an addiction all the time is personal agency versus social, like socialization. Like, is this a childhood Mm -hmm. trauma problem or is this a, you need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and have some individual choice and personal power. Right. And that seems to be the dichotomy that explains a lot of those, that polarization, I think is, is a society versus individual. And we happen to be in a very hyper individualized space in North, yeah. North America, for sure, Western culture is very hyper-individualized. Yeah. And so I can see how that would be easy to characterize Hitler or Stalin or any you know, evildoer as oh, just a bad person, right? As long as yeah. I'm, I'm not a bad person. So therefore, I'm not capable of, of evil, right? Like that <laughs> kind of disowning the potential that there's bigger forces at play. That, that yeah. messy middle space, that grayness around what the causal factor is um, behind that. Do you have a hypothesis on the causal factor behind evil? Um, where, where um, you lean or where you, uh, some thoughts on it anyway? I know it's, uh, 
Yeah, well, I mean, it depends a bit on the context, but I think there's there are a number of things. Um, one thing that I my recent research is really concerned about are, you know, really sort of deep psychological reasons for why we do horrible things. So I've been interested quite lately in how people can do horrible things when they think they're being a hero. Um, so Ernest Becker talks about this as the fetishization of evil, um, where we, uh, we identify a group as other, you know, like it, we quite commonly talk about scapegoating, mm -hmm. these sorts of things. So it's kind of like an extension of scapegoating where not only is this group that's other than us, you know, they're terrible and they're causing all of our problems, but if we get rid of them, then we can have heaven on earth again. We can have, you know, this sort of thing. And it's a, a terrifying process. I mean, certainly plays into, you know, what we see with genocides. You know, we have the, the Nazis labeling, you know, Jews as vermin. We have the Hutu who labeled the Tutsis as uh, cockroaches, these kind of things. But it also explains, you know, um, torture in Abu Ghraib, uh, you know, mm -hmm. these sorts of things that we're seeing where, you know, you can do these horrible things and you actually have convinced yourself that you're good. Not mm -hmm. like I'm doing this terrible thing, but it's for a greater good. Like you really see yourself as doing a good. Um, yeah, and that, that in the residential schools history here in, in Canada, right? Like part of colonization and, uh, and that whole messy history um, that yeah. we have in this country anyway. But yeah, so it's, uh, so for me, I really want to drill down and be, you know, cognizant of the sources of that. So I talk about this a lot with my um, pre-service teachers doing a bachelor of education is like, okay, well, you know, looking to Ernest Becker in this process and then uh, terror management theory was developed um, to test Becker's work because he made some pretty big claims. Because <laughs> yeah. he's saying that we fetishize evil because we're scared of death. And people are like, what? pardon? <laughs> you know, I'll be honest, when I was doing the research, I saw terror management theory and I was like, I've never heard of that. How have I never heard of terror management theory? And I mean, there's lots of different <laughs> niche psychological domains that I'm sure I haven't heard of. Um, but that was like, because I used to talk about, you know, a driver for, for addiction was existential anxiety. And we kind of just joke about it. Ah. It's like all roads lead to existential anxiety as, you know, <laughs> at some level. Um, and, then, and then so to do a little bit, little bit of reading on terror management theory um, in preparation for this, it was like, it really struck like a, an interesting chord. So tell, tell us more about terror management theory and yeah. what well, happens when uh, we don't... Yeah kind of examine our death or like come to terms with the fact that we're mortal um yeah well the first thing i like to point out is that it's terror management theory not terror overcoming theory <laughs> which, uh, which my husband who's actually a terror management theorist uh is always thinks i'm being a bit glib but <laughs> i think it's an important point yep. um yeah it was it was a theory started up you know mid 80s uh sheldon solomon tom kuzinski jeff greenberg uh really did this groundbreaking work to to test Becker's ideas um, and what they found. Uh, and now we're, we're sort of, um, I mean, they're still operating, researching, doing wonderful things, but they have their students and now their students have students. So I think we have over 500 experiments in over 25 countries. Like it's pretty impressive, like yeah. really cross-cultural context. And so, um, so we do indeed fear death. And when uh, we are reminded of death, there are all these funny things that happen consciously and unconsciously. Something that interests me as an educator is if you, um, well, actually, I should take a step back. Um, we do these things that protect us from our fear of death because we humans are like animals. We don't want to die. It's a natural biological sort of thing. So there's kind of a biological component as well, even though it's social psychology. And um, so we seek ways to feel stable, to feel permanent. Uh, so our worldviews really help us with that. Um, first of all, our worldviews uh, will tell us literally what happens to us. 
after we die. And so religions, you know, are you going to go to an afterlife? Are you reincarnated? But for secular worldviews as well, uh, my father's a physics and chemistry teacher and, and an atheist, and he takes comfort that his atoms are going to be recycled. <laughs> you know, so it's, so we, we have these ways of talking about that, but then I would argue uh, really salient to our society today is like our cultural beliefs, you know, they tell us why we're here, where we, where we come from, what's going to endure after us, these kind of things. So to me, the coolest part of terror management theory is not only how a direct reminder of death can show how we do weird and quirky things. Like we become more rigid in our worldview, for example, hmm. but when you threaten someone's worldview, that will unconsciously arouse our fears of death and we'll get those same quirky reactions when we encounter this different worldview. Hmm. Um, so you're really self-reinforcing loop there. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. For sure. So I found that really neat because it's like, to me, it, it makes sense, very logical sense that if you're reminded of death, you're going to do some funny stuff because mm -hmm. that's a big thing. Um, but if your worldview is threatened, that that acts like a reminder of death, that blows my mind a bit. And that's why it's important that they have so many studies because you're like, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> and then you read the studies and you're like, holy monkey, that's bananas. Uh, what? How do you test that? What is like, can we dig into an experiment that would test oh, sure. how you go about sure. um, developing that research? Because like, yeah. like you say, that has implications. Yeah, well, there's a, oh, gosh, they've done so many. Um, to pick out a few, one I really liked, it was actually done here at the U of A several years ago, is they had participants read uh, something that was worldview threatening to them, and they tested their reading comprehension. And your reading comprehension plummets when you uh, read something that's worldview disconfirming. Hmm. I thought that was really interesting. Um, some of what they do is they do like death thought accessibility. So if your worldview is threatened, then how likely are you to pick a death related word? So if it's SK blank LL, that could be skull or it could be skill or these sorts of things. So they develop some of these measures to see how death is close, um, closer to your mind. Um, and they, they try to make death prompts really varied. So sometimes it's direct, like they'll ask you to write or think about death. Sometimes they'll, they'll do one, like they've interviewed people in front of funeral homes <laughs> and not even mention the funeral home. Yeah. And that has an effect. And then there's also subliminal prompts, like it'll just be on a screen while they're doing like another task or these kind of things. Right. So they've done a number of things to sort of establish, um, they call the mortality salience hypothesis and then the death thought accessibility hypothesis. So they try to work at it from both directions. Like you're reminded of death. How do these things happen? Um, so one of the foundational studies was uh, with judges down in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, judges who were reminded of death uh, set a much larger uh, bond for release for sex workers than you know, if they were reminded of death, a much larger bond uh, than those who hadn't. Hmm. So if you weren't reminded of death, you're an experienced judge, you assign the normal bail, bail money. But if you're reminded of death, and in this case, it was a direct reminder, they had to write about the thoughts about death, I believe. Uh, and it was um, it, quite dramatic, like hundreds of dollars more. Hmm. So it was that, that was that an instance of that hunkering down in the worldview. Yeah. Um, a, a recent study that's kind of one of my more favorite ones about this death thought stuff is um, say you read something from a that's worldview threatening, you'll have greater death thought accessibility. But if you read or are told supplementary information that the person who wrote that has died, uh, your worldview threat is alleviated, which mm. is terrifying. So it's like, terrifying. oh, we've gotten yeah. rid of them. Like, oh, okay, I don't have to worry about <laughs> I it. I don't have to ah! worry about that anymore. 
It's terrifying. That is terrifying. Okay, so there's some some downside things that happen. So entrenchment in worldview. Are there any upsides to thinking about death? What happens? Is there kind of a positive association or correlation? So thinking about, so I did some work with um, earlier in my career with the Kids Cancer Care Foundation down here. And I distinctly remember a trip that we went on. It was a two week trip. It was teenagers. I wasn't much older than them. You know, I was probably in my early 20s. And it was a mixed group of siblings who were suffering bereavement. So they had lost a sibling Mm -hmm. and survivors. And so we would have this kind of mixed bag of, you know, a dozen teenagers, 16 to 18, out in the woods for two weeks doing adventure related things. And I distinctly remember walking away from that trip with this profound sense of gratitude around how present and engaged and aware these kids were, so wise beyond their years, so in touch with what was meaningful and important in their life that that, I mean, that stuck with me for a long time um, and probably obviously is still with me today because I'm bringing it up. Um, but so for me, that would be a positive association with having death experiences or death thoughts or like just generally that mortality conversation might cause some of us to kind of examine our lives to think more about more meaning and what's meaningful for us so that's kind of one thing that i think about but are there other benefits or is that a benefit that has been found in the research or let's talk about the upside yeah yeah well if you if you aren't repressing the death uh uh it can it can be a very beautiful thing it's the it's the repression that's the problem okay. like you can see kind of a link here to sort of freudian thinking where you know it's the thing isn't bad it's the repressing of it's the, the thing it, yeah so, so yeah, if you embrace your existential situation, uh, it can make you more generous. You know, like studies have shown, now this is not terror management theory, but just well-known in the literature that, you know, you have a near uh, death experience, you're, you're more likely to be more generous, such as, you know, donating blood, these kind of things. Um, so if you, um, yeah, if, you're, if you sort of come to terms with that, it can remind you of what's important in your life, which for many of us are our relations, you know, with family and other loved ones. Uh, it can allow us to kind of, cut through some of the the crap in our lives like like for me embracing my existential situation makes me not as concerned about winning awards or being the biggest name of whatever or this kind of thing like it just makes me like hey how can I um you know take my students on a learning journey uh that they'll find fulfilling how can I have good relations with my husband and son and and friends and colleagues and and other people that I care about like I I find I don't worry about the little stuff so much Mm -hmm. which is really great uh, and if you know, if you look at uh, countries like Bhutan, for example, I mean, it's an accepted part of their culture that you should think about death um, every day uh, and remind you of things. And they're rated one of the happiest countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so based on that, you can actually get an app for your phone. <laughs> it's called the We Croak app. <laughs> uh, and uh, five times a day at random unpredictable points, because death is unpredictable, yeah. they'll, uh, they'll just tell you you're going to die. <laughs> and then they'll have a provoking quotation you can you can quote or you, you can read the quote if you like uh and that's uh you know supposed to help you know based on this philosophy from Bhutan which I thought was very interesting so so there's that and and even if you are hunkering down in your worldview if there is a bit of death denial um there's a study uh done by Jeff Greenberg and colleagues about uh tolerance that if tolerance is already part of your worldview and especially if you're primed with that even if you're doing some death denying things, maybe hunkering down in your worldview doesn't have to be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, I guess it um, depends. So I've some hope there. Yeah, I guess it depends then on the worldview, right? And whether we Absolutely. whether hunkering down in that is driving good or driving evil, right? In, yeah, in, like in even if you look. Yeah, 
Like if you look at Christianity, for example, I mean, there are Christians who really follow the Sermon on the Mount stuff and, you know, embrace ideas of forgiveness and humility and those sorts of things. So hunkering down in that is great, but kind of the more fire and brimstone exclusionary Christians who sort of say this is the one way and not and other ways of being aren't okay, uh, then, you know, that's, that's not so helpful uh, mm-hmm. if we're going to hunker down in those worldviews. Wow. Okay. Um, so out of terror management theory, some of the, like, what impact has that had on, I guess, teaching or other areas of practice um, when it comes to, because I mean, this just hits everything, right? Like it hits us at the individual level. It hits us at mm-hmm. the community level and the interface between different types of communities and religions and politics and like it's one of those like I do a lot of work with the right use of power framework and so these are like these are close cousin territory around like what's a right use of power versus a wrong use of power well one's for good and one's for evil and, and power <laughs> is the the capacity we have to affect change for people in their yeah. in their lives but you know this seems like a pretty foundational conversation to be having um how do we combat evil so we've identified you know language being one being a bit more precise and a bit clearer around our our language and how we describe evil and how we conceptualize it and not characterizing it as solely individual or solely sociological that there's this Mm -hmm. like contextual soup, I guess, that brings rise to evil or brings rise to good. I guess my bigger question is, are are things getting better? Things getting worse? Are we managing evil (laughs) more effectively? Perception? I mean, I guess perspective is, is probably all over the place on that one. Yeah, I, honestly, it, it depends on the day, sometimes even the minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes I think things are getting worse. Uh, and sometimes I think there's hope for things getting better. Um, I guess where I, where I worry is that because we're in this time of climate catastrophe, I mean, looking at, you know, the fires in Australia, for example, you know, continual floods in, in other places, um, you know, I really worry that we're constantly in a state of existential threat where we're reminded of death and that we don't have enough tools for it not to come out in those weirdy, weird and quirky ways that terror management theory warns us about. Um, so that's a big concern uh, for me. But then I also have hope. Like I, I'm noticing in a number of both academic and activist circles, you know, this uh, this uplifting of, of radical Black feminist thought. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the work of, of Bell Hooks. And I know uh, Dr. Manasalo was on with you recently. Mm-hmm. And this is some work that she does about this radical love where we can, you know, demand the world, that the world be a better place. But it's from this really affirmative stance of the creation of something good as opposed to, you know, things like the gotcha culture and cancel mm-hmm. culture that we that we have now. So I think we're seeing a, a return to some ideas, you know, and similarly, I would say, you know, with Indigenous ways of thinking and being that because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because of things like here in Alberta with our Alberta Program of Studies, which invites us to engage meaningfully with uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit uh, perspectives. I think there's also an opportunity to be, you know, okay, how can we see the world differently? You know, because if, if you're learning through story, as opposed to someone just telling you the way it is and it is or it isn't or that kind of thing. I think that fosters more of that thinking that helps prevent these evil profit processes from happening. Mm-hmm. So moments of hope, moments of sheer terror. Um, but I, I do think as a society, whether it's through terror management theory or something else, like honestly, like I, I am very fond of terror management theory, but I know everyone has their ways of understanding the world, but 
man, if everybody could have a way of attending to these difficult emotions that come up about death, about, you know, when worldviews are in conflict, about, you know, the plight of our planet and, and everything upon it. Like if we could have these ways of sitting in those yucky feelings, you know, you, maybe you're a, maybe you're a Buddhist or, or maybe you're a terror management theorist, or maybe you're a something else, but mm -hmm. gosh, I think we could really get somewhere. Yeah. And that's, that desire, I mean, that's a shared desire. Um, and what draws me to the work of Marshall Rosenberg and the nonviolent communication is mm -hmm. the, the pathway that he lays out for doing yeah. that, for increasing our emotional literacy, for being mm -hmm. able to recognize emotions as fleeting things that we don't have to necessarily take action on, but are flags that tell us we care about something. And for us yeah. to dig beneath that and see, well, what is it I'm caring about? Maybe it's death and I'm af afraid of my own death. That'd be good to know before I go yeah. off and have a midlife crisis and buy a sports car and do all kinds of crazy <laughs> things, right? Like maybe that would be helpful, um, but also yeah. interpersonally and between communities. And so, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's tools that are out there, there's pathways that are out there and it's trying to figure out how to get people to get like the uptake of those tools. Mm -hmm. Like you say, there's, you know, there's a lot of work happening in different, you know, usually minority circles, usually, yep. and in the right use of power, we would describe it as down power. You know, you have up and mm -hmm. down power and yeah. people with up power tend not to think about their power at all, tend not to think it's about true. their impact because they don't have to, because they're not being affected by it. And so we start exactly. to, we start to see the, you know, the thoughts and the tools and the change actually happening when people mobilize and collect. Um, and activate that kind of that energy um, towards some to build something new because um, there's not a lot of incentive to build something new when you think that everything is great and fine and you're like you say your worldview is mm -hmm. leading you down the path that you're the do the you know your view is the right one and it's everybody else who needs to change so yeah yeah I don't know if there's a question in there more as like a question around I think we have the tools like I think there's tools out there yeah. I've seen them work in rooms with. Mm -hmm fragmented families right a kid who's been mm -hmm. in throes of addiction and a mom and a dad whose relationship is on the rocks because of different approaches and we've been able to see movement and change happen mm -hmm. in that space and that's my my hope as a practitioner is that we can take that and we can scale it out and we can teach systems yeah. to behave that way and so a lot of the work i do is in education um as well as the nonprofit and some corporate work here and there around how to have some of those difficult conversations whether it's with yourself yes. or with other people. So do you have any tools, any favorite kind of ways to have that conversation with yourself? I'm thinking for the average listener walking away from this conversation, if that's what we're having, sure. right, a Q&A and a bit of <laughs> Jeff rambling. Um, <laughs> if they can walk well, away I, uh, with some practices, what would you recommend? Sure. Uh, well, I, I borrow a line from a, from a Radiohead song. I think the song was called There, There. And it, they have this line about just because you feel it doesn't mean that it's there kind of harkens to some things you were talking about earlier being like okay I feel this feeling why am I feeling this feeling uh and just taking a second to be you know to to think about your thinking and think about your feeling mm -hmm. um because I think in our day-to-day -day interactions you know we can get defensive and then that can sort of spiral uh and then you know taking that as a as a personal spiritual practice uh as well as applying it then out in the socio-political world uh so we have just recently you know had the tragedy uh you know, with a, a large number of, of people, uh, mm -hmm. you know, with the plane crash in, yeah. in Iran. Uh, and so realizing like, okay, you know, we've all been reminded of death. Uh, many people here in Edmonton have lost people that they care about. So, you know, before on social media, we post something being like, oh, this is exactly what happened. And we're going to solve it this way. Like, let's take a breath. Let's wait. Let's see before we do anything drastic, mm -hmm. you know, let's get the facts. Let's talk it out. Um, before just taking our feelings and running with them. 
you know, in the hopes that, you know, of course, uh, everyone wants justice to be served, whatever, whatever that may be. But, you know, it's that it's that rush to want to hurt those who have hurt us that have gotten us politically, I think, in so much trouble and causing all sorts of cascading effects. So I, I think I want everyone to just stop for a second and think about, you know, am I assuming someone else is in the wrong when I might have a part to play? How am I part of the system? But then without being crippled by guilt, because guilt isn't that happy yeah. or isn't that helpful, pardon me. Yeah. Uh, shame is not that helpful, but responsibility is very helpful. Mm -hmm. So just thinking of ways like we don't have to be perfect, but we have to be trying to take responsibility and, and recognize our part to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that resonates. I think, you know, being able to build in a pause between stimulus and response, essentially, like if we're getting right down to it, like why mindfulness is so helpful is because mm -hmm. it gives you the ability to sit in an emotion and not have to take action based on it. And I push back a little bit about mindfulness training in, in elementary schools because it's like, well, I have an eight-year-old son and he is the most present and engaged child when he's doing something interesting, he doesn't actually need to be taught how to be mindful. He's mindful all the time. He needs to mm -hmm. exist in a system that reinforces that ability exactly. to be present and engaged and thoughtful and you know all of those things we would want. That's really hard in modern life to be present and engaged. Sure. And like, so there's, you know, context again can, uh, can be attributed to a lot of this. I'm reminded of a quote, I forget who said it, but it's something to the effect that, you know, all of man's troubles are a result of him not being able to sit quietly in a room for 20 minutes. Hmm. Right, like that, just that ability to, and that to me talks about that pause, that awareness of, yeah. and being able to disentangle our, our responses and our reactions from the stimulus, right, whatever that looks like, and and that's feelings and needs in the in, in lots of frameworks um, around that. Yeah. So fascinating. Um, resources, things to check out if people, if we've like somebody's like, oh, I'm interested in this. How do I learn more? Where do I go? What do I read? Um, Sure. What are your go-to, maybe out of your curriculum, or the things that you do with with students? Are there some some favorites, things that are fairly accessible um, for people to sure. get get into this? Well, in terms of people who might be interested specifically in terror management theory, um, Sheldon Solomon and Tom Pazinski and uh, Jeff Greenberg wrote a wonderful book. I think it was 2015 called "The Worm at the Core." Okay. Uh, and that's a great starting spot because it's it's written for the non-expert as opposed to their um, their psych publications that are, yeah. you know, like every academic, thing, a little <laughs> bit impenetrable. I yeah. mean, bless them for writing it. Uh, so definitely I would recommend that uh, for people interested in applications of terror management theory into education um, with a, a federal grant to, as part of a project. I've been developing a, a website. Uh, it's called The Grim Educator. Okay. And it does draw a little bit from uh, Hannah Arendt. Uh, but also from Ernest Becker and terror management theory. Uh, and a lot of it is, you know, my work with students and pre-service teachers about implementing it, ideas and tensions and some additional resources. So I definitely recommend checking that out. Um, if anyone wants to head into the, the nerd uh, cavern uh you know if they want to check out my professor profile page at uh, Alberta, i've got some links and uh, i do try to publish as much as i can in open access journals so there's some in there as well okay perfect but, uh, yeah. Yeah. again nerdy but you know <laughs> if people want to take a deep dive there you go <laughs> yeah. well, that's, that, those are great and i'll make sure that i have links um right off the the website page to people can go check those out um, well thanks yeah thank you so much for the conversation um i didn't really know what to expect 
chatting with Dr. <laughs> Abel, but uh, it was a really, uh, really wonderful conversation and I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. I think that we're coming at the, some of the same problems from just different perspectives. Um, and I think that's what the world needs right now is a lot of different perspectives with the same same end goal, which is to, you know, maybe reduce some suffering and maybe bring some people together. Um, and so, so I thank you for that. Well, just a, just a thank you to you. It's been a, a pleasure being on here and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Well, I don't know about you, but that was a fascinating conversation for me to be a part of, to consider some of these things around death and good and evil and things that we just don't think about in our day-to-day life. And so, you know, a huge thanks to Dr. Catherine Van Kessel, also known as Dr. Evil on Twitter, for her time and her thoughts around this. And of course, as always, if you want to learn more about any of our guests on this show, you can always check out the show notes at www jeff coulard that's j-e-f-f-c-o-u-i-l-l-a-r-d dot com and just hit the podcast button and find the episode that you're interested in we've got links to all a bunch of different things that uh, dr van kessel mentioned in today's interview this month we're going to be focused on ownership around here so that's going to be the theme and we're going to talk about what we should own what ownership really means um, what's most important in our lives and so this this podcast actually kicks off that conversation really really nicely um, taking ownership of what's most important to us um, should be something that happens after we reflect a little bit on our own mortality and so stay tuned for some podcasts and some resources and some conversations about ownership around here thanks so much and have a wonderful week